miles an hour and this chicken came right up on the driver's side of my door just running right along with me I'm just, so I, I, I push it up to 70 and this chicken stays right with me I, I push it up to 80 and this chicken doesn't miss a bit just runs right with me and then before I can make any other move, the chicken just roars ahead of me, cuts across in front of me and into this farmyard. And I have to, I've got to find out about this chicken. So I pull in and it says Don Whaley's three-legged chicken ranch. I've got to find out about this. So I go in and and it's just coincidentally that his name is Don Whaley. It's not the same Don Whaley. <laughs> and I said, uh, excuse me, but are you the owner? He said, yes, I'm the owner. I said, well, where did you come up with this three-legged chicken idea? He said, well, we, we did some research and we found out that most people prefer the drumstick of the chicken. And we could make a lot more money if we breeded chickens that already had three legs. I said, what's well, an incredible idea. Uh, how do they taste? He, and he said, well, we don't know. We've never caught one. <laughs> <laughs> then I had a, a chance to go to New Orleans and I 
I love the Cajun people. Love the Cajun people. And uh, they have a series of true life stories about two guys in Cajun country, Thibodeau and Boudreaux. And they were telling the story about uh, Thibodeau playing his accordion one night. And from the other side of the bayou, he heard this voice and he said, Would you just shut up till you learn how to sing? Thibodeau was irritated, but he ignored it and kept playing. Ten minutes later, the, the voice said again, Hey, listen, learn how to play that thing or shut it off. And Thibodeau said, Who are you? He said, My name is Clarence. He said, Clarence, you better shut up and leave me alone. Clarence said, Look, you stop playing that thing. Well, Thibodeau plays it. Clarence curses him out. Thibodeau tells his wife, I'm going over there and I'm going to kick Clarence's butt. And he puts down his accordion. He walks to the bridge. He's going to go across the bayou. And he comes back in a matter of minutes. And his wife is puzzled. She said, well, did you, did you go over and, and, and fight Clarence? He said, no. His eyes were that big. She said, well, why? He said, well, I, I got to the bridge and it said, Clarence, eight feet, six inches. <laughs> and then, of course, there's the time when Boudreaux, Boudreaux won an all-expense-paid trip to Paris, France. But he wasn't going to go. He had never been out of the bayou. He was not going to Paris. But his friends and relatives were so critical of this decision that he eventually changed his mind reluctantly. He gets on the airplane, and when they close that bulkhead door, he panics. Jumps up, runs for the door. And the flight attendants grab him and they say, Boudreaux, Boudreaux, what's wrong? He says, oh, I'm scared. I don't want to go. I don't know the people. I don't speak the language. I don't know the culture. They said, Boudreaux, you're Cajun. Your language is based on French. You already know more French than anybody on this airplane. He thinks about that. He begins to calm down a bit. And one of them said, look, I've got an idea. I've got a little cassette player and headphones. And I've got a cassette tape of conversational French. It'll give you all the normal phrases that you have to use to get by. You'll be perfect. Sweetness. Okay. He sits down, plugs in that cassette player, and for eight hours, he listens to that tape from New Orleans to Paris, France. He lands in Paris, and one of the gendarmes comes up to him. I says, bonjour, monsieur. Comment ça va? And he looks at him and he goes, You didn't know I was a linguist, did you? I have to tell you, one of, it's a true story. I was at some huge event, huge event, and I had one of these mics on. And my wife 
was with me and she was sitting in the front row. And I was a little nervous, so I decided, you know, I'm, I need to go to, go to the men's room. <laughs> you know where I'm going, don't you? Unbeknownst to me, the mic was hot. So I'm in the bathroom, and my wife apparently is just panicked, and she's praying, Dear God, please make him wash his hands. And she held her breath till she heard that shh. And I came out and she looked like she was ringing away. I couldn't understand what was wrong. That, that actually happened. Well, I'm glad to uh, talk to you. Oh, and I've got some good news. I've got some good news. You know, some of you already know that Walt Hendrickson is my spiritual father. I, uh, I owe so much to that man. But oftentimes, I have to translate or interpret what he says to an often hostile audience. <laughs> and so after this morning's meeting, I talked to Walt and I pulled him aside. And the good news, the good news is that he said he was just joking. <laughs> Did I get it right, Walt? Okay. Everybody feel better? Yeah. <laughs> Let's take a moment and pray. Uh, Father, we praise you that you are a God of loving kindness, that you are long-suffering, patient with your children, that you draw us with cords of love to your own heart, and though we fail, yet you continually lift us up with just sweetness in your hands. We ask that you would teach us keep and keep us teachable. Fill us with your spirit and give us learning hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. I wonder if you would turn with me to Jeremiah 45.5. Walt introduced me to this verse, and I absolutely rebelled against it. And I had to do my own study. When you get there, say amen. Yes, 45.5, but I'm going to start reading at verse 1. This is the message which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to Baruch the son of Neriah when he had written down these words in a book at Jeremiah's dictation in the fourth year of Jehoiakim the son of Josiah king of Judah saying thus says the Lord the God of Israel to you O Baruch you said woe is me for the Lord has added sorrow to my pain I am weary with my groaning and have found no rest Thus you are to say to Baruch, Thus says the Lord, Behold, what I have built I am about to tear down, and what I have planted I am about to uproot. That is the whole land. But you, 
Are you seeking great things for yourself? Don't seek them. For behold, I am going to bring disaster on all flesh, declares the Lord. But I will give your life to you as booty. Or in some translations it says as prey. P-R-E-Y. In all places where you may go. Now... This is in the fourth year of the reign of the king of Judah. And Baruch is told to, in earlier verses that we have not looked at, to read a scroll to the elders. Baruch had been, uh, had a very good upbringing and a very good education and high expectations for his future. And Jeremiah, the clear prophet of Israel, has called him as a scribe and said, I want you to write down what I say, and it's from the Lord. This is an extremely high honor. And with that honor, Baruch expected a number of things to come his way. There would certainly be public acclaim for his significant status. He, among all possible scribes, was chosen to be the scribe for Jeremiah. He could reasonably expect job security. He could reasonably expect with his fame would come financial security. He could reasonably expect the um, respect of his community and he would be able to walk around as a respected, if not indeed decorated, man of Israel. And I am certain, though it is speculation on my part, that when he began to read the scroll, he did so with a certain restrained flourish. This was a dramatic moment. The people would hear the word of God and they would know that Baruch had played a role. What wondrous things awaited. But a surprise came when he read. The elders became very troubled by the reading. Because God was saying because of the disobedience of Judah, he was going to bring havoc to the land. And instead of the elders lifting Baruch to their shoulders, they told him that he and Jeremiah better take the scroll and hide. When Jehoiakim was read the scroll, he took a knife and cut it in half and then threw it into the fire and gave an order to find Jeremiah and Baruch so that they could be punished or killed what a shock to Baruch and God hid them and Baruch's expectations ran smack dab into the reality of being a witness for God and his expectations 
were unreasonable. Although you and I should certainly be able to understand because if you are like me, Baruch's expectations would have mirrored my own. God was going to bring great ruin on the entire country. The ruin was imminent. The ruin would be complete. And God would not stay his hand. In light of that, Baruch's expectations were unreasonable. But Bill McCurran would have had similar unreasonable expectations. What are some of the unreasonable expectations of the new believer? And we suggest that one of them is that there is no suffering. I will not suffer by reason of my witness for Jesus Christ. Now I want to distinguish that from the promise that Jesus gave in John 16. He said, in the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Now that's a promise. And uh, as one of my friends is fond of saying, how are you doing? He says, well right now I'm tribulating. <laughs> I'm tribulating. And whether you're a believer or unbeliever, you get flat tires, right? The check gets lost in the mail. The client doesn't pay on time. A child gets caught in an accident. A relative dies unexpectedly. You go to the doctor and you receive a diagnosis that you never anticipated. Matthew Henry, who was a wonderful Christian writer, long deceased, wrote this, and I'm quoting from his commentary. Young beginners in the faith, like freshwater soldiers, are apt to be discouraged with the little difficulties which they commonly meet with at first in the service of God. They do but run with the footmen and it wearies them. They faint upon the very dawning of the day of adversity. And it is an evidence that their strength is small, that their faith is weak, and that they are yet but babes who cry for every hurt and every fright. In Proverbs 24.10 it says, If you are slack in the day of distress, your strength is limited. And if you recall the famous parable of the sower, there are a group who receive the word of God but the root of the word is very shallow and when adversity comes by reason of their witness the wheat dries up and dies because its root does not go deeply enough there are unreasonable expectations also of perhaps the mature believer let me read from Philippians 3 verse 9 the righteousness which is of God by faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection that would be good if it stopped right there because we all want 
to know Him, right? We all want the power of His resurrection. And the fellowship of His sufferings being made conformable unto His death. I didn't realize that was in the bargain. The resurrection comes before the cross, right? Am I wrong? It seems that the nails must be pounded in, shame hurled at the very people whom you seek to help, and then you must die and be buried, and then comes the resurrection. And I don't know about you, but I prayed for a long time for the power of his resurrection and stopped right there. I had hoped that the fellowship of his sufferings was something that did not have to attend my growth in Christ. Romans 8, 17-18 The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God and if children then heirs heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ if that is so we suffer with him that we may be also glorified together for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us and of course we all know this one from Matthew 16 if any man will come after me Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the entire world and lose his own soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? So let me go back to Philippians 3.9 that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. The tense of the Greek word being made conformable indicates an action that is done upon us. We are participants but we are not controllers. Well what do I mean? We don't cause our business to fail. We are working and humping and advertising and doing everything for it to be a smashing success. And it fails. Despite our best efforts, our business goes bankrupt. We keep our bodies in good condition. We take proper vitamins, we have proper nutrients, we get the right amount of exercise, not too much to make an idol of our bodies but enough to keep a reasonable portion of good health and we walk into the doctor and there is a diagnosis that shakes us to the core it is an action that is done on us over which we have no control brothers we ride it out 
because God is conforming us unto his death. And little did I realize that I had for years prayed for this to happen. I'd get together with a group of men, a wonderful group of men like this, and somebody would put a transparency up, and we would all collectively sing, Make me like you, Lord. And maybe if I had realized that was a prayer, I would have mouthed while you sang. But we send these prayers up to God every not every time, but how often have you sung a song that if you stopped and you really look at the words, you realize that you are asking God to do this very thing in your life. So here I am in 1996. I think I shared this story with T.J. McGinty once. Well, it was earlier in 1990 than 1996. I was talking with my wife, and I was being a very humble and godly husband. And with ever so much humility, I said to her, Dana, I've been practicing law for 12 or 13 years now. And I have never lost a trial. God has really blessed me. And I was fully expecting that my sweet Christian wife would say something like this. Well, of course, Bill. You're a godly man. Of course God would bless you. You have a quiet time. You read the Bible. You're in his word. You love me and you're a godly. Of course God would bless you. And instead my wife started off correctly. She said, of course. And I began to swell up in my chest just a bit to be able to humbly receive... The rest of that sentence, she said, of course, Bill, God knows that you're not strong enough to handle a failure. And she didn't stop there. She said, he knows that if you lost, your faith would be so shaken that you would probably turn away. Gentlemen, I was immediately angry at my wife. I don't mean mildly irritated. I was furious. And but for the constraint of God, I tell you honestly, I would have struck her. But one thing was clear. She was absolutely right. That's what hurt me so much. And as soon as she said it, I knew she was right. And it felt, uh, if some of you have ever played football before, you know how you get hit right there. I couldn't even breathe. I couldn't talk to her. Because the wind had been knocked out. I used to pray with my, uh, uh, alone, daily, 
God, make me the best trial attorney in San Diego. Make it so that nobody in town gives a better opening statement than I do. Nobody gives a better closing argument or conducts a more effective cross-examination than I do. And my wife and I were praying together in bed one night and I, I began to pray that and I felt, you know you can feel someone staring at you? And here I am just fervently making this prayer and I stop and I look at my wife and she's looking at me with unrestrained disappointment and embarrassment. And I'm, I said, what's wrong with you? She says, I can't believe you're asking God that. And I said, well, why? She said, well, you should be asking for his will to be done. And immediately in my mind, I'm going, I don't want his will to be done. I want to win. You understand? I didn't say that, but gentlemen, to be honest. You understand? To be honest. I didn't want God's will done. I wanted my will done. And I was very clear about what my will was. She would not pray with She said, I cannot affirm you in this. I cannot pray this with you. And I said, well, fine then. I'll pray by myself. I don't understand why this is such an issue. Well, it took me years to abandon that prayer. And so here I am now, in 1995-96. And, and this is, gentlemen, probably five to seven years after this confrontation with my wife. He is long-suffering. And I say, Lord, I put my practice into your hands. I'm trying to do my best to take my hands off of it completely. I put no constraints on you, but I would just ask if you could be as merciful as possible. I said, but it's in your hands. I have to tell you, I meant that. I meant it with all my heart. But there was a part of me that held out this hope that God would look from heaven and say, Bill, I've been waiting for you to say that. And I am going to open the floodgates of heaven and make you successful beyond your wildest dreams. A month later, I'm sitting at my desk, and it's empty. It's empty. I have never had a time in my practice when my desk was empty. I'm going, what is going on here? I have no work. And then, bam, the Spirit came back and reminded me of the prayer I'd said Lord I want to be the man you want me to be I want you to take my practice in my life and I want you to do what will glorify Jesus Christ whatever it takes I don't know what this means I, I don't know but I want you to do that and let me tell you and I'm embarrassed to say it my first reaction was could I go back in time and rescind that prayer Well, this was around October, November of 95, 96.
stayed that way for the rest of 96. But praise God. Guess what happened in 97? Not a doggone thing. Stayed the same way. But praise God. 1998 came. Guess what happened? My partners came to me and said, Bill, you just haven't been producing. We're going to have to cut your income. We know it's going to hurt, but we have to do this. I said, understand. And when they left, I got down on the floor. I said, God, I'm going to be the low man on the totem pole here. How can I witness for you? <laughs> As the low man on the totem pole. Praise God. 1999 came. My partners came back to me again and said, Bill, you're still not producing. You're going to have to drop your income again. Now during this time, I have never done more to build my practice in my entire career. And everything I tried failed. I would get a case, biggest case of my career, only to find that there would be not a legal conflict of interest, but a political conflict of interest. One of my partners was suing a downline subsidiary for punitive damages, and the company said, we just can't politically within our company. We want you, but we just can't. It's not a conflict of interest, but we just can't do it. And they had brought the case. The case was sitting on my desk. It would have kept me and four or five lawyers busy for two or three years. And they said, we need you to send it back. And when I got that case, I said, oh, God, thank you. Three days later, it was gone. Gentlemen, I want to tell you, I cried. God, your partners look at you differently. You think, what's, what's wrong with McKeeran? Why isn't he producing? God. Oh, Talk about unreasonable expectations. Lord, I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. Now at the same time, my opportunities to minister go up. They just start going up dramatically. And I tell my wife, I can't go to these places. So why? Because, Dana, I am failing in my law practice. And she said, did it ever occur to you that that's exactly where God wanted you? <laughs> in order to be able to use you. Gentlemen, when, when our mother-in-law comes and she nitpicks about the way we do the yard, that's not suffering. That's just life. <laughs> When you buy that car, you get a flat tire on the way to some important appointment. That's not suffering. That's just life. Right? Everybody experiences that. It's when we begin to do the work of God and we expect the rewards of a citizenship when we do not belong to the country. We are strangers here. And this is not our home. 
our rewards are not here occasionally things may come but my expectation was not with the kingdom and God had to show me that and I want to tell you he's not done and I've asked him when he will be done and you know what he told me nothing absolutely nothing so I went back and I looked at the story about Baruch because I said oh man his expectations made such sense and now I see they're unreasonable make me like how many of you have sung that song even once in the past five years so God anoints David to be king of Israel and instead of a celebration he spends the next 7 to 13 years as a fugitive hiding in caves for his very life by a king gone mad Moses exiled from Egypt at the age of 40 and now and now when he is an 80 year old fugitive has been an utter failure in his own eyes now God says Moses I want you to go to Egypt and Moses says but you know when I was 40 and ready to kick butt all up and down Egypt you did not come and I'm 80 years old tending my father-in-law's sheep on the lamb for 40 years and you tell me to go to Egypt he says I can't do it why me and you know God didn't say to Moses it is because you are a godly man you know he said certainly I will be with you didn't answer Moses' question at all because why the question was irrelevant the issue was is God with me or not is God involved in the circumstances of my life working out his will in my life making me the man that he wants me to be if he is doing that then the question about who am I and whether I win or succeed all of that's irrelevant those are questions of the flesh they are not the spirit enlightening the work of God in one's heart it says okay Lord do what you have to do and Moses now goes primed because he's, he feels personally inadequate to do it and when he fled at 40 he felt more than adequate to lead the people out of Egypt but at 80 he knows that he cannot do anything without God at 53 Bill McCurran knows he cannot it's not academic now you understand it's not academic now I know that I cannot do anything without God so Baruch said three things each of each of which some of us here at some point have said Jeremiah 45 3 it says woe is me for the Lord has added grief to my sorrow I 
fainted in my sighing, and I find no rest. Three things. Woe is me. The, that is, these troubles are more than I can bear. God is working against me, not for me. He does not help. I am weary, too weary to go on. I find no rest or peace. And the Bible gives us some real answers to these genuine complaints. To the one that God gives us as much as that, that woe is me, these troubles are more than I can bear. God has added grief to my sorrow. God says, look, I will give you as much as you can bear, but no more. But I, God, get to determine what you can bear. Now, we've all heard this verse before. No temptation is taking you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted or tried above that you are able, but will with the trial also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. Why would that phrase be in there? Flee from idolatry. It just doesn't seem to fit. Well, maybe it does. Because as my father Walt says we fear in the direction of our hope now if somebody says to me Bill if you do such and such you are never going to eat liver again and they say that as a punishment well you know what I'm not hoping to eat any liver so I don't I'm not afraid of that circumstance I have no hope in that but what happens if the issue is we don't want you to witness in this setting anymore if you do you're going to lose your job now, now you got to obey authorities but I'm saying you do this in a way that doesn't violate company rules but in, in any event it's an issue that you have to deal with what do you do? Where is your hope? What do you fear more? Losing the rewards of heaven or losing a job? I'm not talking about losing salvation. You understand that. What do you fear more? The disappointment or criticism of your peers or the disappointment and the rebuke of God? And it doesn't matter whether you're a sophomore or a senior in high school or like Gene retired. The issue is the same. What do you fear more? So if you're young Seth, then they say, Seth, Susie wants to have sex with you now. And if you're a stud guy in high school, this is exactly what you do. Well, do you fear their criticism or do you fear God's rebuke? So God will not try us more than we are able, but God gets to determine what we are capable of holding. And then Baruch, God is working against me. Against me. The Bible says, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, 
he did also predestinate to be what? Conformed. There's that word again. Conformed to the image of his son that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brethren. It is only by the word of God and by his immutable character that we know that God is always working in our best interests. So that when a seeming tragedy hits and the question naturally comes, why God? Why me? Why now? What do we hold our hope on? The only thing that we can hold our hope on is that I don't understand but God is always working in my best interest from an eternal, not a temporal perspective. And God gets to determine what is in our best interest without our vote. There is an alternative. If we are able to save ourselves, if we do not need a savior, then we have the right to determine what's in our best interest. But if there is any possibility, as he said to Job, save yourself. If there is any possibility in your mind that you cannot save yourself, then you have no right to determine what's in your best interest eternally. And therefore, you have no right to determine what's in your best interest temporally. Because we often cannot distinguish the two. You understand what I'm saying? And to the statement, I am too weary to go on. That's Baruch. God says, he gives power to the faint. And to them that have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall be faint and grow weary, and the young men shall utterly fail. But they who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with the wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. Let me tell you, I believe that that is a hierarchy of response. I believe that God intends for us to soar as eagles in response to all our circumstances, but we don't always do that. And he recognizes that we, he won't, we won't soar, but he says, okay, if you're not able to soar, you'll still be able to run, wait upon the Lord. I uh, met a wonderful guy from Nepal who was a devout believer. And in Nepal, it is illegal to preach Christianity. And uh, it's not illegal to preach Jesus. It's illegal to preach Christianity, and there's a difference. And he didn't understand the difference. And so he was preaching, and he was thrown in jail with uh, just... Uh, in Nepal, they have no civil justice system that says anything about treating prisoners in any decent way. I mean, it is a vile pig pen of a place. Murderers and rapists. And he is in there in this prison knowing that he's going to die. 
And one of the leaders in the prison is a notorious murderer. And he comes up to my friend and grabs him by the neck. And at this time, my friend realizes that it is not Christianity he needs. It is not doctrine that he needs. It's Jesus. And he surrenders it all to Jesus. And in that moment, the murderer sees something different in his eyes and says, what is it that just happened to you? Do you know that every man in that prison came to Jesus? And the murderer said to him, no one can put a hand on this man. And he left knowing from a completely different perspective the fellowship of his sufferings. Gentlemen, before he was thrown in the jail, he was what he was called the Billy Graham of Nepal. He came from a highly respected family in Nepal. His expectations were rightly of fame and acclaim in his country. But he came out with an encounter with Jesus Christ. I'm not trying to imply that he was not already saved. I'm just trying to tell you that his expectations of rewards here while God was, what does he say? I will overturn and overturn and overturn until he comes whose right it is. And God is going to overturn in every single society until Jesus comes back. And yet, we all want, if you're like me, I want life to be cushy. I don't want problems. I want to be able to take glorious vacations with my family. I want to have the prize-winning front yard. <coughs> Baruch says, I have no rest. Oh, going up to this... Uh, I never appreciated this fully before my experience. A bruised reed will he not break, nor a dying ember will he quench. Jesus will see our recoiling from the suffering that ought to come from, not what, that comes with letting him work in our lives or being a witness for him and rather than come critically and we got this little bitty ember and it's almost died out Jesus comes right up on it cups his hands around it and very gently blows on it blows on it until that ember becomes brighter and hotter and brighter and hotter until it's a glow and it can ignite other embers. Just as an aside, are you a brother who's seeing that dying ember crushes it out because you just don't have time to deal with this immature brother? Or you see the brother suffering and you come and you dump a whole lot of air on it which is the same, you know, as crushing it out. The ember cannot grow that way. It, can, it takes gentle breaths for the ember to glow. Too much and it's extinguished 
just as certainly as if you stepped on it? Or if you see that bruised reed, do you just pluck it up because it's in the way? How unattractive it is to your witness that this brother whom you have helped has fallen. What a bad reflection that is on your ministry. God gives us genuine rest, he would say to Baruch. From Hebrews 4, 9 through 12. There remains therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, so he also hath ceased from his own works as God did from his. Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Now, here, how often is this taken out of context? For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Gentlemen, we know that God gives us a final and eternal victory. And every once in a while a temporal victory, but definitely an eternal victory. And so just as the psalmist, we may say, I waited patiently for the Lord... And he inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of a horrible pit and out of the miry clay and set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. And he hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it in fear and shall trust in the Lord. This image of the horrible pit and of the miry clay. I don't know. San Diego has a clay-based soil. And if you've ever been in a wet clay pit, one of the things you will quickly find is that there is no way to climb out because you cannot gain a foothold. As soon as you attempt to do so, the clay gives way. If you are in such a pit, you must be lifted out. You cannot climb out. And so if you perhaps, for your witness for God, or if you perhaps are experiencing in a profound way the working of God in your life and it hurts, then the counsel of God is to wait patiently. And he will lift you out of the horrible pit and out of the miry clay and set your feet on a rock and establish your goings. Um, Sundar Tapa came to visit our men's group two years ago. He's also from Nepal, which is primarily a Hindi and then a Buddhist country. And uh, uh, the police arrested him for preaching Jesus. By this time, the authorities didn't understand the difference. And uh, Sundar Tapa is an uneducated man with a powerful hope in Jesus Christ. And so they grab him and they say, We want you to renounce Jesus here and then publicly. And so they take a knife and they slit from his wrist to his elbow. And
and they require him to renounce Jesus. And he said, I cannot do that. And then they put salt in the wound and they said, now we demand that you renounce Jesus. And he said, I cannot do that. And then they took chili peppers and they poured it in the same wound and they said, we require you to renounce Jesus. And Sundar Tapa said, I cannot do that. We have it very easy in the United States as believers. Extremely easy. And generally speaking, the persecutions that we face are on a scale of persecutions in the world of Christians quite insignificant. But because our cultural perspective is limited, they seem so big to us. And and I'm not trying, please brothers, I'm not trying to belittle the, the, the disappointments and the sufferings we face. But I am trying to put them in a realistic context. How many of us have actually been persecuted at the threat of death of ourselves or of our family members for the witness of Jesus Christ? And how many of us identify with brothers and sisters in other worlds who face such persecution on a daily basis? So I meet a young Moroccan brother who came to Christ through a dream. He grew up as a Muslim and was taught to be a Muslim holy man. And his heart was to go to the church in Morocco. And in this church in Morocco they had one Bible which they tore apart and they passed it around to the believers chapter by chapter. And they met underground and their fellowship was deep because their sufferings for Christ were so profound. And I was upset because my law practice was suffering. We have... I'm sorry, I don't want to put on you my own feelings. So let me say, Bill McCurran had lost perspective of what it meant to truly have experienced the fellowship of his sufferings. And so I was beginning to think that a petulant mother-in-law was the cross. That uh, difficulty with mortgage payments was the cross. That a uh, co-worker who was just kind of irritating was the cross. No, that's just life. The cross comes when we bear our circumstances for the glory of God, when we witness despite the cost to us for the glory of God, all the while fixing our hope on the King who will reward us understanding that as strangers in a strange land, there are no rights that we have for reward here. It all comes later. And if 
I can gain a better perspective of the fellowship of his sufferings. I won't wilt so much or wilt so quickly when adverse circumstances come. But that when they come, I'd be able to say, Thank you, Lord, that the Spirit beareth witness with my spirit that I am your son and that there is nothing that I undergo here that I cannot find reward for in heaven if I respond in a way that pleases you. So what will God do with my law practice? Brothers, I don't have the slightest idea. And yes, I hope for his mercy. But my hope is beyond that into what I hope to gain on the other side of the grave. So, the praise passion is to be used by God for His glory as He sees fit when He sees fit. So that in our own little circumstances we could be described like Jesus was described. He endured the cross for what? The joy that was set before him. And so whatever the cross is in our life, may our expectations not be unrealistic that we will prosper in this strange land, but that we will fix our eyes on the joy that is before us so that in light of that, we can view these minor problems. We can view these problems as minor compared to the gain in Jesus. Thank you.